and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Virginia Postrel, an award-winning journalist and independent scholar. We will discuss her new book, The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World, which is published by Basic Books. So welcome to the show, Virginia. Thank you. So I got to say, I'm really excited to have you on the program because I've admired your work ever since I read The Substance of Style many years ago. I was really excited about this new book and it didn't disappoint. So congrats. And uh, and it was a real accomplishment. Well, and thanks. And thanks for your help on some of the research, getting me some of the harder to find uh, documents. The pleasure was all mine, um, and I'm glad that I was able to be of some assistance in this really fantastic project. Um, so, so this is a book all about the history, or kind of the social history, in a sense, of, of fabric. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways today, we kind of take fabric almost for granted and treat it as something that's almost like disposable. But, but it used to be like immensely valuable. Why is that? Well, this is the story of, uh, in in many ways, of what Deirdre McCluskey, the economic historian, calls the great enrichment. Um, how did we go from a world where basically everybody was poor to a world where basically everybody is, by historical standards, if not contemporary standards, rich? And there are many roots of that, but the traditional one is to talk about the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution started with mach- machines that could spin thread, could take fiber, cotton fiber, wool fiber, and turn it into uh, thread or yarn, it's sometimes called, which is not when we think of thread, we tend to think of it as for sewing, but this is for weaving or knitting, for making cloth out of. And what we don't realize, why would we, is that it takes a tremendous amount of thread to make anything. So, for example, uh, to make enough denim to make a pair of jeans takes about six miles of cotton thread. And in the pre-industrial revolution world, the fastest, best spinners in the world, particularly for cotton, were Indian spinners using uh, the charka, which is a type of spindle wheel. It uses a big wheel to turn a little wheel many times. They could spin about 100 meters an hour. And I apologize for the switching between metric and and English, it would take them about 100 hours or 13 eight-hour days, although they didn't work eight-hour days, to make enough cotton thread to weave the denim for a pair of jeans. Well, in that world, any kind of fabric is expensive because even though spinners made very little, they were so unproductive per hour. And these are people working very hard and they're very, very skilled, but there's only so much they can make. And so thread is expensive as a component of a piece of cloth. It was the most expensive component outside of the raw wool or or cotton, particularly wool was more expensive. Um, 
and yet the spinners made very little and the cloth was relatively expensive. When the Industrial Revolution came along and suddenly that process was mechanized, that made this fundamental ingredient in all kinds of cloth much more abundant, much less expensive. And we tend to think about cloth as being an ingredient in clothes, which of course it is, but it's also an ingredient. It's also our blankets. It's upholstery material. It's particularly in a pre-plastic world, it's bags and sacks. It's tents. It's sails. And we're talking in a world where ships use sails. All of these things throughout that ripple throughout the economy became more abundant and, and less expensive. Um, and then you get power looms uh, shortly thereafter, and that further lowers the cost and increases the availability of of cloth. And then in the 19th century, you get chemical dyes or, or rather synthetic dyes, uh, and that enlarges the color palette and changes uh, sort of the the the. Uh, the process by which things are are dyed and feeds the chemical industry itself by creating a big market for chemical expertise and for uh, precursor chemicals. So fabric is something that is so ubiquitous that if you change the way you make it or you change the way you sell it, you change the world. One thing that I was really surprised by in the book was just how long the process of creating thread has been with us. And it it struck me that based on the way you describe the importance and the ubiquity of the creation of thread as being something that like huge numbers of people, especially women, had to spend most of their day every day doing. I mean, it almost seems like this is like, throughout recorded and maybe much of pre-recorded history, this is like the sort of one of the defining features of human labor. That's absolutely correct. And in fact, uh, before the 19th century in Western art, the sort of iconic image that would represent industry, if you have allegories of industry and commerce, pictures representing those two parts of economic activity. Industry would be represented not by smokestacks, which came later, but by a woman spinning, because a woman spinning was the quintessential manufacturing activity, the industrial activity of the pre-industrial world, if you will, Uh, because everybody did it. Everybody knew it was important. it was something that was throughout life. And so there are, and it was particularly associated with women. Other aspects of textile production have some, depending on the place and times, weaving or raising crops or tending sheep or dyeing might be done by women and might be done by men and might be done by both. But spinning throughout history and around the world has generally been a female occupation. And there are theories about that, but there are no really good explanations. Uh, 
but it is this very, very fundamental industrial, industrious process because it is very, very time consuming. Now, the good news is that it is not unpleasant if you're good at it. I I tried my hand at spinning and it's actually quite difficult to master because you have to get the tension exactly right. But people I know who are hobby spinners, uh, especially nowadays, I have a friend who is in a lot of Zoom meetings where she's secretly spinning cotton while she's in her Zoom meetings. Um, and, but it was a way of per- people, women would be portrayed in art as spinning. And that could be the Virgin Mary spinning. It could be an image of the virtuous housewife. It could be a Greek prostitute on a vase. It could be uh, a slightly raucous, racy uh, image of flirtation in Western Europe. Whatever way you wanted to show women, you would often see them spinning because that was the truth about women's lives. There was one fact in the book that really stuck with me as kind of illustrating the point that you're making here, which was, I feel like, in a lot of ways, the kind of icon of national power in the pre-industrial area is was like a ship with its sails. And you pointed out that the sails on the ship would typically take longer to produce than the ship itself. Well, that was certainly true of, of Viking sails. Um, now, the great the great ships of the British Navy in the, say, the 19th century, those were post-industrial ships, and so they had sails that were made in factories. But certainly before that, up until the late 18th century, those sails represented enormous amounts of work. There was the spinning and there was also the weaving, uh, and there was the putting them together. Um, so it it was something that people didn't take for granted. And in fact, one interesting little side note um, is that duct tape, which uh, we assume when people call it duck like the quacking bird, uh, that that's a misnomer. But actually, it was originally called duck tape because duck was a type of canvas. And it was, in fact, what was used for sales. Um, But, yeah, for Thanksgiving, I did a piece for uh, USA Today about giving thanks for textiles. And I looked at the Mayflower sales, and we don't actually have the exact sales from the Mayflowers, but they're knowledgeable reproductions. And they would have taken nearly a million yards of yarn to weave, uh, to, to compose. And that would have taken something like two years of work to spin. So the the, the amounts are staggering. Obviously, it wasn't spun by a single person. It was spun by many people. And um, spinning was a common occupation in workhouses, uh, as well as a way that women made money, uh, putting, you know, working in their homes, spinning for people who gave, uh, there was a putting out system where uh a textile manufacturer that is somebody who was a weaver or had a sort of a weaving workshop would 
by wool or cotton or linen or whatever and hire spinners, give them the wool, pay them for the amount that they spun. Uh, and th- there is always in the history of textiles this issue of where d- who funds the working capital. So in that case, the spinner wasn't funding the working capital, the, uh, the weaver was. At least one way of looking at your book is talking about the history of fabrics as a kind of history of technologies. And I think we often think of weaving as being a kind of fundamental technology, maybe spinning to a lesser degree, although you do a wonderful job in the book of explaining why it should maybe take a more prominent place. But you talk about other technologies that are so critical to fabrics as well, like technologies in agriculture and in chemistry as well. Could you expand on that a little bit? Right. So first of all, on weaving, interestingly, the root of the word technology uh, and the root of the word textile, going back to the Indo-European roots, is the word that means to weave. So there is, at least in in Indo-European languages, this deep connection, and it it shows up in other languages as well. Um, So yes, we tend to think about technology as being about machines or these days maybe about software, um, but it includes other things. And one of them that's very important is agricultural technology, by which I don't just mean harvesting machines. I mean things like better seeds, uh, improved breeds of sheep. And you see, going back to ancient, ancient history, enormous amounts of human brain power going into producing better fiber crops, uh, whether that is flax, whether that is cotton, which was domesticated in four different regions around the globe, uh, in Africa and India and uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula and Peru, that's where all our cotton originates, Um, and then improved over many, many, many generations. Uh, The cotton that we use today bears no resemblance or very little resemblance to the trees uh, that were the original wild, and you can still see it, wild cotton trees, uh, which have just very small bowls uh, that are mostly seeds, and the fiber is kind of usually yellowish, although there are other, there's brown cotton and white, but it's not that super white cotton that is good for turning into other colors <laughs> that you see in in cultivated cotton fields. And the same thing is true of sheep. Uh, white sheep are highly unnatural. <laughs> and woolly sheep, in fact, are pretty unnatural too. Uh, the original sheep were more hairy uh, and they only had a little bit of the kind of woolly uh, fur that's good for spinning and and turning into yarn and then into cloth. So a lot of human ingenuity went into what we call natural fibers, but they're actually highly unnatural. And don't get me started on silk, which is super unnatural. (laughs) Um, And then chemistry is uh, 
the history of dyes is the history of chemistry. Uh, it is the history of trial and error, uh, chemical learning without fundamental understanding. People, you know, trying what if I add this? What if I add that? What what are the responses and long before there was any kind of understanding of molecular chemistry, people were understanding that with acids, they got one thing. And with bases, they got another thing. If you use a copper pot, you get one result. If you use an iron pot, you use another result. Uh, Trying to control temperatures before you have thermometers, uh, timing before you have good clocks. And yet people managed to to do that. And then once you started to get the early understandings of chemistry as a science, starting in, let's say, the 16th century, dyeing was the way that people could stay on the cutting edge. And that's where the people who were really interested in chemistry in a serious way worked. I mean, you know, alchemy gets all the good press, but the truth was, you know, you can't tell if people claim they're making the philosopher's stone or they're turning lead into gold. There's not much to prove there, but with dyeing, you could see if not cause and effect, you could see if then, then this, if, if I do this, then I get this. And so there was a kind of logical scientific experimentation that went on that was just sort of trial and error empiricism that then as you started to get more actual chemical understanding and theories of elements and, and, uh, uh, of molecular weights and all of that sort of thing, you started the first applications were in dyeing and the way that people who were interested in it could, you know, make a career, could earn a living at it was by working in dye houses. And then in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, where you have people experimenting with chemistry, trying to synthesize new, particularly new drugs, uh, it turns out they invent instead of William Perkin is the first one invents instead a synthetic dye. And that then has enormous consequences because once you have synthetic dyes, and this is where the textile industry is a major, major industry, you have a big demand for chemists, for chemicals. You have the beginnings of the chemical industry, which leads to everything from aspirin to uh, photographic chemicals to eventually synthetic fibers and plastics and and all of that sort of world that we live in today. So these other aspects of textile technology have really influenced the world in big, big ways. Uh, They really have changed not only our material world, but the way we understand the world. So in your book, you talk about textiles, not only in relation to technology in the kind of sense we've been talking about just now, but also in relation to what you call social technology. I wonder if you could talk about what you mean by social technology and why textiles, why fabric was so important to its development and sort of historical arc. 
Right. So by social technology, I mean uh, the category of things sometimes called institutions, but things that people invent that allow them to interact with other people, especially across distances. So this is everything from uh, financial instruments and double-entry bookkeeping to really fundamental things like literacy on a mass scale or, or, or at least a sort of bourgeois scale or the use of Hindu Arabic numbers or all those arithmetic techniques you learned in elementary school. Somebody had to invent those things. Those are a kind of technology. And because textiles are so ubiquitous and so often traded and traded across distances and well because they are so ubiquitous because textiles are so ubiquitous and they are so often traded across distances and because they have such a long time between when you harvest the cotton or the flax or when you shear the sheep to when somebody actually sells cloth there are lots of stages in that development and you need lots of institutions or lots of social technologies to carry you along that that path and and so it's not that you couldn't have developed these things in trading other goods. It just happens that they developed in many cases out of the textile trade because the textile trade itself was so important. Uh, And so I have a chapter in the book that's called Traders, and it is an examination of a lot of these different social technologies. And also, since you have a legal audience, I, I did a guest week of blogging at the Vala Conspiracy where I focused on some of those examples. Yeah, but I couldn't believe how far it went back. I mean, you were talking about examples of how fabric was the subject of sort of communications in cuneiform. Yeah, 4,000 years ago. It's amazing. When you read these cuneiform letters, and there are also contracts and some legal documents from legal disputes, uh, they are at once very, very distant. These people have nothing in common with us, you know, in terms of their understanding of the world, their beliefs. And yet at the same time, they are very familiar. They are very familiar kinds of disputes or very familiar kinds of squabbling between business part- partners slash spouses. <laughs> um, they're very familiar problems of uh, what do you, if you have a principal and an agent um, in a distant, distant place selling for you, how do you instruct him as to your wishes? All of these kinds of things are recorded in these amazing archives, uh, they're called the Old Assyrian Archives, which were basically found in the homes of expatriate traders who were in a city that's in Anatolia that was called Kanesh, and they came from a place that was 
basically a city of merchants and middlemen that was about 750 miles away and they were riding back and forth to people there. And so we mostly have the correspondence of the people who wrote to them, plus various kinds of contracts and and legal documents. But sometimes they also make copies of the letters they sent. So we have some of those. So in relation to that, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that you know sort of how the ubiquity of the trade in textiles made them a kind of de facto substitute for currency. Why was that and how did it work? Okay, so so there are two things that we can think of. One, which is an idea that's familiar, is barter, where you say, you know, I'll give you wool and you give me grain and we make a deal. But in several places completely dispersed around the world, textiles actually functioned as true money. That is, there were standardized units. They were a medium of exchange that was recognized in in law. Um, In some places, like China, they were legal tender. That is, the government said, you must accept these silk bolts as currency. Uh, Taxes were collected in it, et cetera. In other places... uh, in Western Africa, where people were trading between there and what's now Libya, uh, and in I- medieval Iceland, all of these are kind of in the Middle Ages. Um, they developed out of common use. There wasn't a, a, a bottom-up development of textiles as a kind of currency that then became legally recognized so that you could pay your debts and and that sort of thing. And in the pre-industrial world where making textiles takes a lot of time, they actually work really well as money uh, because they can be made in standardized sizes. Uh, It's hard. They're hard to make. So there's a, a limited supply. And if you if you get an overabundance of textiles relative to other goods, they tend to get taken out of the monetary supply and just turned into clothes or whatever. And vice versa, if if they become undersupplied, people will make more money. They will weave more cloth for exchange. So it, it is a very interesting example of textiles operating as money. Um You also have uh, a different kind of twist on that, which is the use of uh, beginning in the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, mainland Europe, not Iceland, uh, the use of a kind of debt instrument called or a payment instrument called a bill of exchange, which over time becomes negotiable and functions in places where there are currency shortages very much as money. Um, and that is only really superseded in in some places like parts of Scotland uh, with the coming of central banking very late on. Well, you also talk about another social role of fabric in terms of defining social meaning and social relationships. How does it work in that way? And how do the technologies you talk about 
inform the kind of social meaning of textiles? Yeah, well, textiles clearly are more than functional. We may need them to protect us from the elements, but we also use them to uh, express ourselves, to add beauty to our lives, and to signal our social identities and our social status. Uh, and this can take all different forms. Uh, it can mean, you know, wearing, if if you are a, a lady uh, from a prominent family in Renaissance Florence, uh, you might want to wear textiles like velvet brocade that would be understood by anyone who saw them to be extremely expensive as well as beautiful. And that would signal that you are from this prominent family and say something about your status. Uh, it can take other forms. Uh, so, for example, in uh, the famous African wax prints that, that are very much associated with everyday life in, in throughout Africa these days, there tend to be, they're often geometrical. They could take on many meanings. Whatever the designer had in mind may not be what people give them names. And they, and so what you wear, if people know the name of that design, can signal something about your relation with your husband or uh, in, in some places where uh, – there's polygamy, uh, your relationship with the other wife. <laughs> um, it could be about your hopes for the future, all of these kinds of things. And if people who know how to read the code can see something there that's beyond, oh, that's a pretty dress. Well, so in closing, Virginia, I feel like we often think of textiles as being a really old form of technology. And yet you point out in the book that there's actually a huge amount of innovation taking place in the textile industry. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the future of textiles. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's been a tremendous amount of incremental innovation over the past few decades, driven by uh, the needs of sort of demanding users like outdoor enthusiasts and athletes and even first responders so that, for example, your t-shirt or your raincoat is much better at wicking your sweat or keeping you dry than one from 30 or 40 years ago. And that sort of started with Gore-Tex, but it's become more and more and more uh, pervasive. And there's been a lot of innovation on that front. In terms of the potential for big leaps, uh, one thing that is definitely happening uh, is the use of more and more computer-driven three-dimensional knitting. Uh, knitting is displacing weaving in many cases as the dominant way of making fabrics. Uh, so that's the difference between your stretchy t-shirt and your jeans or your or an Oxford shirt, traditional Oxford shirt. Um, knitting takes less time to set up, so you can change it more easily, and the clothes are more comfortable and, and, and sometimes, and they 
uh, have this stretchy quality. And so as we get less and less formal, knitting is popular. So three-dimensional knitting allows you to create clothes or sneakers uh, all as one piece instead of sewing them together. So instead of sewing in the sleeves or sewing different parts of a shoe together, you can have design it on a computer, output it, and the whole thing is there as one continuous piece. And this has been around for several decades, but it's gotten less and less expensive, more and more efficient, and the software driving it has gotten better and better. And and so as apparel manufacturers are looking to have less and less waste, less and less uh, sort of unsold inventory, this allows them to hold their inventories in yard instead of clothes and make as they see the demand. There's a lot of potential there. And then there's all kinds of more sort of high-tech, far-out stuff. Uh, there's bioengineering yeast to excrete uh, protein polymers that can be spun into silk, uh, vegan silk, if you will. There there are uh, people looking at how they can embed computer sen- uh the computer chip sensors, lights into thread that can be woven or knitted into garments. There are people uh, looking at various nanotechnology coatings, all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of work around, around uh, the environmental impact of, of textiles, reducing the environmental impact through new processes or uh, new types of of textiles or new types of textile finishes. Because since textiles are so abundant, they do have a big environmental footprint. Uh, Each individual piece doesn't necessarily, but in, in total they do. So people who are concerned about environmental issues are increasingly looking at textiles to see what can we do there to have a potentially big impact. And this goes back to the idea of change cloth and you change the world. Well, Virginia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed this book and couldn't recommend it to listeners more highly. I actually read the whole thing in, in one day. Um, and, uh, and there's so much more in there that we weren't able to talk about that um, I think people will really enjoy. Thank you. Spinning, weaving, spinning